We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome. To the Pat Mayo Experience, continuing our NFL draft coverage. If you missed Wednesday's show with Emery Hunt from TheAthletic.com, give your head a shake. What's wrong with you? But you can hit the description of this video or podcast and go check that out after you listen to this show. And if you want to get into a draw for 20 DraftKings dollars, if you're watching the video, smash the like, leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section and tell me your top three running backs in this draft class that you would like your team to draft. Maybe not with a first round pick, but somewhere along the line in a hypothetical world where they all fall to the fourth round, give me the top three that you'd like. You want to get into a draw for 100 DraftKings dollars, the big one? Then subscribe to the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast. Leave a Five-star review, DraftKings handle, something you enjoy about the Pat Mayo experience, and boom, you're in the draw for 100 DK bucks. Winners announced, well, it used to be every Monday, but now we pre-tape Monday shows. It'll be sometime next week when we film a show that day. I will release the winners, and we'll have a mock draft coming out on Monday, more draft Tuesday and Wednesday, culminating with the draft prop show, where we can all lose money together betting on the NFL draft. Fun times. Joining me on the line to talk some more draft and a little bit of NFL news from EstablishTheRun.com, man who is digging into the NFL draft. I mean, more so this year. Probably, I mean, Evan, it's Evan Silva from Establish the Run, by the way, in case you didn't know. Um, are you doing more draft work this year that you're stuck at home, or is it just the same? This is what you were doing anyway. <laughs> I'd say it's, it's about the same. Uh, but there's not as much data to work with and as much information to work with this year because um, there's no pro day workouts because there are no scouts and executives on, you know, the, the pro day trail talking with each other information gets out. Like this is the least, you know, the, 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 the pre-draft lead up least amount of information that has ever trickled out. And that's because everybody's staying at home. And so, um, I, I think that, you know, there's just not as much information to work with, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cover, you know, covered as, as extensively as I possibly can. So I, I feel like when people think Evan Silva, they think fantasy football rankings, they think establish the run.com and the big presence that you have in fantasy. I feel like it gets overlooked how accurate your mock drafts have been over the past few years. So congratulations for being good at this. Thanks. Thanks. I always wanted to be good at mock drafting. I was really, really bad for a long time. So, you know, I finally got to be decent and um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it took a lot of, a lot of trial and error, you know? Well, what do you find when you're trying to do a mock? Like, do you then have to put yourself into the position of like, let's say when the Raiders are up and Mike Mayock is on the clock, there's a lot of information about Mike Mayock out there because he used to do the mock drafts and provide all the information. Do you have to put yourself into the position of the GM or even like with the giants? You're like, I'm Dave Gettleman. Here's what I actually prioritize versus Evan Silva doing a mock draft. And be like, Oh, here's who should go here. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to, it's just, it kind of depends upon what you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to predict what will actually happen in the draft? Are you trying to, like, uh, discuss, you know, what you think should happen? And, you know, I used to do it, I, you know, I would, I would create my own big board, and then I would, like, assign, you know, players that, you know, I thought that those teams should draft whenever they were on the board. And, I mean, if you're looking, if you're trying to be predictive, that's, the total opposite way uh, uh, that you should be doing it. What you should really be doing is trying to figure out, yeah, a little bit of the history of the people that are the decision makers for each team. And also using a, um, uh, like a crowdsourcing kind of uh, approach and looking at people that do have documented history of being good at predicting the draft for a long time. That was Mike Mayock. We uh, obviously he's not doing mock drafts anymore. Um, <laughs> Bob McGinn was really good for a long time. And I still think that his mock draft, he longtime writer for the uh, Milwaukee journal Sentinel green Bay press Gazette. And he uh, is now with the athletic, but uh, his, and and he actually started his uh, own website there for a minute and always looking at his mock drafts because he's super plugged in seeing who he has players projected to. I think that that has been really helpful. Daniel Jeremiah is the best mock drafter in like, you know, big draft, mainstream media always want to look at you know who he is predicting listen to his podcast Tony Pauline um, who is now with the Pro Football Network uh, he ran his own site for a really long time he's really really plugged in I listen to all of his podcasts um, you know working at Roto World for a really long time the foundation of Roto World as a website is the beat writers and the beat writer reports and you know blurbing on Roto World for 10 or 12 years. I mean, I, I have a pretty good feel for uh, which beat writers get stuff right, which beat writers get stuff wrong, which beat writers are just trying to like appease their audience, which is the fans, you know, so just a, a combination of, of all those factors. I think, I think that's, that's what can get you on a, on a decent path. And again, you know, I, and I say this all the time, but no one's actually good at mock draft. <laughs> no one's actually good at it. The best guy each year, guy or gal uh, is getting like maybe, 12 to 14 player to team matches like that's sensational to be able to get 12 to 14 player to team matches. And that's less than, you know, a 50% hit rate. So predicting the draft. And I think it's one of the things that makes the draft really special and so much fun is, is the unpredictability. And this year I think is going to, because of the, the dearth of information out there, this is going to be the most unpredictable draft that we've seen in a long time. Like I think that in a normal year, getting 12 player to team matches uh, would be great. I think this year, like maybe eight or nine would be great. Well, it does seem like if everything stands how it is one and two, I don't want to say that they're absolutely locked in, but it does look, it's going to go Joe Burrow to Cincinnati. It looks like it's going to be chase young to Washington. And then after that, it seems like it could go almost any way. Like yes. do you, do you, do you expect the lions to trade the third pick? Cause I kind of do. I kind of do too. I kind of do too, but you know, you have to consider, is it going to be harder for teams to pull off trades I mean, they're, they're going to have to set it up, I think, in the days leading up. And it's easier to do that at the top of the draft. So I still do – I do expect the Lions to uh, trade the third pick. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's going to be more difficult than in years past. But I think that with one and two seemingly largely locked in, um, then the Lions should just be, you know, spend the next week trying to figure out a way to get the most po- – most, the best possible compensation – and move down in the draft. I mean, they, they're, they're, you know, they're a long way away. I mean, they, they need players. They need picks. Well, how much do you think that the virtual draft is going to play a problem with this? Like we definitely know that there's going to be some front offices who are stitching together. I mean, we've already, everyone's laughing at the picture of Dave Gettleman with his gigantic binder and his computer from 1992. I'm sure that's, everyone just likes to pile on Dave Gettleman. I'm sure he's probably got it somewhat figured out, but there is going to be a discrepancy between. You're you're sure about that? I'm not, I'm not sure about (laughs) that, but yeah, if you're going to pile on the guy, pile on him for his shitty process or bad picks or whatever it might be, his style. But did you notice how that huge binder was between him and the computer? Like, why, why does he have that huge binder, like, you know, obstruct? Like, can't he just keep it? it, it, it there shouldn't be any space between 
know, there shouldn't be like a massive binder between his body and the computer. Maybe he likes to rest the computer up on the binder. Like we talked about it on Monday. When you do a good Zoom chat, you want to elevate that camera just a little bit to make sure that you look all right. I mean, I'd be more concerned about like the guys doing some NFL draft research. Then all of a sudden he's got like hand lotion within hand reach. I don't know what the hell's going on there. Like, is it really dry wherever Gettleman's at? I don't know. I don't want to say, but we know that there's going to be front offices that are really good at this. They're going to put in the time or they have not necessarily younger people because it could be, I know a ton of young people who suck at, suck at technology and older people that are great at it. It all depends on how tech savvy, how much investment that teams want to put into this, because I think it would be a huge advantage, especially when it comes down to trading. Like you said, at the top, you can probably plan that out a little bit because you know where you're going to pick. But once you get to picks like 12 and 13 and 14 towards the back end of the first round, or even as the draft goes into Saturday and Sunday, that the teams that are on the precipice of knowing how to use their tech, making sure that things don't fail, if they communicate with everyone, might actually be able to steal uh, a lot of value in drafts because there's not going to be as many people on the spot in order to negotiate with. It's like being in your fantasy draft and you have the one idiot who times out on his picks every single time because uh, he's like not paying attention to what's going on. He's not checking his cell phone that people are texting him. He's like reading a magazine from four months ago. And then you have the guy who's on the ball. be like, oh, I can definitely make a trade with that guy. He's paying attention. I don't want to break it down to be as rudimentary as that because there's going to be a lot of tech involved here. But being able to talk to people in real time and knowing that doesn't get fucked up I think could be a huge advantage for someone to move up and steal something. Yeah. And I also think that, well, I think that one of the concerns was, have you, you, you probably, I've been watching more news, you know, actual national, you know, and, and global news than I ever have in my life over the last, you know, what month or whatever. And, you know, when they bring reporters on and their internet you know, isn't working very well. You know, I mean, that, that's been like a common occurrence, whether you're watching, you know, ESPN or you're watching CNN or Fox News or whatever it is that you like to watch. Um, you know, there, there has been like, you know, the, the internet connection hasn't been very good uh, often when they bring in like these experts. And so um, I think that that could be an issue. I think that NFL teams and, and general managers will be looking to hit singles and doubles in this draft more so than swinging for the fences uh at least in the first round and early on in the draft i think that they're just gonna try to get you know solid football players their three histories plummet i think that we could see you know players with like brandon Ayuk, the uh, receiver out of arizona state he has a, a core muscle surgery which sounds just like a sports hernia surgery which usually is like a routine recovery period. But I think that 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 element of uncertainty, because, you know, teams cannot bring these guys into their facilities and have their own team doctors put their hands, you know, feel them all, you know, uh, examine them personally, uh, that, you know, that that creates a a great element of uncertainty that could lead to falls in the draft for uh, guys like Brandon Ayuk to some extent, and uh, certainly for Tua out of Alabama, I mean, there has been even some talk that and, and, and buzz that he could fall out of the top 10. So does that mean that teams would end up like, does that mean love moves up the board? People just reach on Justin Hubert, like or Herbert, sorry. Uh, how does this end up working? Like if he ends up falling, like if he, if he falls outside the top 10, then we start, I assume someone would end up trading up, but let's say like one of the big three, I know they just signed. I was going to say Teddy Throzevelt, but Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, Like the Panthers at number seven, I find really intriguing because they just give Christian McCaffrey this gigantic contract. They just sign Teddy Bridgewater. They get rid of Cam Newton. They have, I mean, do they have the worst defense in the league? Because it kind of looks like that on paper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's real, real bad. Like, could could they take And they lost, and they weren't very good last year. And they weren't very good last year on defense. And then they lost Luke Keekley and, and James Bradbury, you know, so. I mean, those are at critical positions. I don't think that they will take a quarterback. I, I really don't. Um, I, I think that I think that they're going to be looking at defense, and I think they're going to be looking at um, uh, Jeff Okuda if he makes it there. And I know that everybody thinks that he's just a lock to go to the Lions. But again, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in this draft. Or Derek Brown, big defensive tackle out of Auburn. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe I guess their move is to build up both ends of build up the trenches, build up the offensive line, build up the defensive line, and then two years from now when there's like a quarterback on the board, or just tank for Lawrence next year, um, or or potentially. I mean, they get- they do have a pretty significant commitment in Teddy Bridgewater at what, three years and about twenty million a year. They do, but but maybe they're just yeah. like, hey, look at the Rams when we can just you know, pay forty million dollars for players to be on other teams. No big deal. <laughs> So when we were looking at this, like let's talk about McCaffrey for a second. He gets four for 64. Um, you know, he becomes the highest paid running back in the league. And everyone hates running back deals. These are gonna be, you know, it's outrageous to pay a running back this much. You can mine this from whatever. The only counter I will throw to that, it is a lot of money, but I mean they're not going anywhere right now, so it really doesn't matter to their team if they're gonna be bad anyway. But isn't he the type of running back that you would pay a lot of money to only because he is a running back and receiving hybrid? Like, isn't that the type of player that you would want because they do more than just being you know, a between-the-tackles runner? Yes, but they could have gone about this in a smarter, more you know, team-friendlier way. Um, I mean, they had him at, at, you know, at a really cheap cost in 2020. And then they had the, the team option year in 2021. And then they could have hit him with two franchise tags uh, in consecutive seasons and paid him about four years and 50 million. Instead, they gave him four years and 64 million. So, I mean, I think that they just could have played their cards better. I mean, there was, there was no indication that he was going to hold out or anything like that. And um, I, I just, I, I think that they went a little too fast. I mean, I think that they, I mean, I, th- I just I think they could have played their cards better uh, in, in that scenario. But I agree with you that if you're going to pay a running back, you know, you don't pay an early down grinder. You pay a guy who can um, dominate in the passing game. And Christian McCaffrey is, you know, maybe the best receiving back in the NFL. So from that standpoint, it does make sense. They just I think that they could have um, they could have they could have gone about it in a little bit smarter way. Well, now after McCaffrey gets this money, Joe Mixon's throwing up smoke signals that he's going to end up holding out from the Bengals. Holdouts, it's really tricky because obviously there's a pandemic going on. Uh, It seems like it'd be really bad PR right now to hold out, especially with the draft looming. Your team has the number one pick. And as it pertains to like fantasy coming up for the upcoming year, if the holdout actually happens and even into training camp, like the past few years seemingly have taught us don't take those guys early. Yeah, and Joe Mixon is in a different position because he was not a first-round pick like Christian McCaffrey was. He's a second-round pick. So the Bengals have one year left of him. They don't have the option year. Um, And so that's going to create a difficult situation, especially for them because they don't like to pay players uh, their market value. The Bengals, I mean, they, you know, are historically a very much, you know, the maybe the NFL's most penny-pinching franchise. They've also got a situation with A.J. Green where he was dissatisfied with his contract last year and his injury, you know, we, we heard that his injury was not as, as severe as, you know, uh, the, the end result. He didn't play at all during the season and he probably could have come back at some point, but he was displeased with his contract situation. He gets hit with the franchise tag. You know, that's another uh, potential holdout situation uh, when, when everything clears up. So. Um, yeah, I mean, the Bengals have some really difficult decisions to make. Uh, and, you know, they did draft two running backs last year, uh, Rodney Anderson and Travion Williams, and they do have Giovanni Bernard. So they do have some insurance behind Joe Mixon. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they, they've got some really difficult decisions to make. I mean, and, and they're going to want to keep as much talent as they possibly can around Joe Burrow being a young quarterback coming into the league with no offseason workouts, potentially abbreviated training camp. You know, he's, he's being pushed into a pretty difficult situation just because of the things that have happened around the world. Not knowing how this ends up playing out or when the season's actually going to start, how long OTAs are going to be or how long the preseason's going to be, if there's any at all, do you think that continuity is going to matter a lot going year from year, heading into this season in particular? Absolutely. And it already matters a lot. It's probably one of the most underrated um, kind of advantages, competitive advantages that NFL teams have on one another. Like uh, my buddy Pat Thorman of Pro Football Focus, or 
uh, and now have established the run, uh, posted a um, like an uh, approximate value chart just straight off of uh, Pro Football Reference, uh, essentially ranking teams in how in order in how much value they've been able to get out of the draft uh, over the last twenty years. And if you look at it, it's really just a ranking of continuity over the last twenty years. Who you know who which teams have uh, had a ton of turnover. Um, you know, in the head, in the head coaching uh, position, in the you know, in the in their front office, those are the teams that have drafted the worst over the last twenty years. You know, Patriots, Packers, you know, teams, Steelers that have had a lot of continuity. Those are the teams that are up top, and you know, there it's it, it makes perfect sense that that would be the case because when you have continuity in your coaching staff, in your front office, in your uh, decision making roles then you can have a, a unified kind of vision uh, in terms of, you know, what kind of players do you want to add to your team? You know, um, who, you know, which, which players fit the, you know, fit the schemes of the de- the, you know, the defensive and coaches, uh, defensive and offensive coaches that, you know, what did they like to run and everybody can work together, but when there's a ton of turnover, you know, that, that, that possibility is not there. So, and I think that that will be especially pronounced because of because there's so so uh, so little information out there uh, this year, and teams are going to have to rely on um, you know their 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 uh, their objectives uh, as you know unified organizations, and also just studying the tape uh, more more than ever because um, especially guys that weren't invited to the combine, like there's no numbers on them. So. I want to get back to the McCaffrey thing for a second because they could have saved. Like I, I hadn't even thought about that way. You let yourself go out, you pick up the option, then you franchise, franchise, and you end up saving money that way. How come teams, and maybe they are, and I'm just overlooking it. How come they're not more creative in figuring out what year that the cap hit is actually going to matter? Like if Carolina goes into the season, they're like, hey, we're not going to be very good. We're probably not going to win the division. Maybe everything breaks right. If we're going to pay you $64 million, could we have a cap hit of $30 million for you this year if we can squeeze it in? And then you're a very viable contract after that. Like how come more, it's like when the Patriots trade up to the back end of the first round, knowing that if they draft a running back there, they get that extra year option because it's a first round pick. And that actually gives them far more team control uh, in not having to go into this situation where it seems like other teams don't even think about this stuff. Some teams have, and I think it's an interesting question because it's something that I have wondered myself a lot about. Um, the 49ers did it with Jimmy Garoppolo where they, you know, had a ton of cap room, were able to jam a, a ton of his contract and, you know, front load that contract to be able to, you know, jam that into, uh, into his initial years. And then he's pretty cheap going forward. You know, but um, first of all, you have to have a big, um, you know, a big, uh, a lot of cap room to be able to do that, first of all. So that, you know, that limits the, the number of teams that are capable of doing that. And then you have to find, you know, uh, players that, um, you know, that, that, are, that you're willing to commit a ton of money to uh, in, uh, in those first initial years. So, uh, but I, I think that, you know, with with Christian McCaffrey, like I think that what the Panthers did was they just uni- they just identified him, you know, regardless of position almost, they identified him as a player that was a core player to them. They wanted to make sure that they that he knew that because they they did uh, change their their coaching staff, and you know, there's a lot there has been a lot of turnover in Carolina, and I think that. You know, keeping Christian McCaffrey, they probably view that as a, a big plus for the quarterback that they just invested in in Teddy Bridgewater, having that that versatile, you know, Swiss Army knife kind of um, workhorse running back uh, that Christian McCaffrey is. Yeah, I would think of it too in terms of it's really hard to have a bad one year deal in the NFL. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously there are bad one-year deals, but it was almost like that Kirk Cousins contract the first time around with the Vikings, where everyone's just like, oh my God, it's a lot of money for Kirk Cousins. Three years, $93 million. Like, but it's only three years. Sometimes the shorter end of the deal, like it doesn't, the money is just money at that point. You can make it fit any way that you want that. Uh, even if you were able to basically turn one, like the Richard Sherman contract that he just got. So it's a three-year deal, but essentially it's a one-year, $7 million deal. They can get out of it right away. That 
it seems like uh, you mentioned the Niners. They did the, the Jimmy Garoppolo. It seems like their front office is not necessarily leaps and bounds above everyone, but they're definitely on a different level than these teams. That like I, I'm pretty sure that some teams do not consider this stuff, which just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, you know there was. Um, you remember there there was an uncapped year. Uh, I think it was the the year after the lockout. And the Redskins and the Cowboys try to like jam a ton of a ton of their money into the uh, into the uncapped year, and they actually wound up getting in trouble from the NFL, even though there were no rules against it. It was it was kind of like a big controversy. But I mean, I, I think that teams do think about it. It's just it it has to be like the right situation. You ha- first of all, you have to have a ton of cap space, and then you have to again identify players that you really think are worth you know get like front loading the the heck out of their contracts. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I, I, there's far more risk to it than maybe I'm trying to let on when I'm talking about it. But it's also the unwillingness, for, I think, for a lot of teams to recognize the fact that they're bad or will potentially be bad in the upcoming year. Mm-hmm. It does strike me that all 32 teams go into the season and be like, we're going to be good this year and we're probably going to win the Super Bowl. Uh, if there was a little bit of self-assessment, like on the like, is is Carolina going to be bad, bad? I don't think so. But again, and maybe maybe the fans will say, maybe the organization will say, you know, going six and ten or seven and nine is way better than going two and fourteen. I would actually argue the opposite, but that's me as an outside mm-hmm. observer, not someone who's trying to protect my job at the same time. So it's a difficult balance to strike. No, I'm I'm totally with you on that concept. Uh, it's just that they have not, and I thought that they would operate with that approach in mind, but they really haven't. I mean, that you know, a lot of the signings that they've made extending McCaffrey, uh, signing Teddy Bridgewater, those are not quite indicative of a team, you know, trading for Russell Okun. Those are not quite indicative of a team that is, um, you know, aiming for uh, a a worse uh, win-loss record. Like, I think that they want to – I think they're more focused on, like, building a culture and things like that. I mean, they're going to – I think they're going to have an exciting offense. Like, we're going to like them in fantasy. They're going to be terrible on defense. Teddy Bridgewater, I think, is a good enough distributor to be able to get the ball consistently. DJ Moore, um, Ian Thomas, I like a lot. Obviously, McCaffrey, Curtis Samuel. You know, they've got a pretty nice young uh, offensive core, and I think that they're going to build around that. And um, I think they're going to be fun on offense. Yeah, and it's going to be a situation as well where not only are they going to be good on offense, bad on defense, the other three teams in their division should also be very good on offense that they're just going to perpetually, at least in my mind, be behind in trying to play catch up going through the air the entire time. Like, would it be outside the realm of possibility that McCaffrey averages like seven and a half, eight catches per game? No. I mean, I think that Christian McCaffrey's game perfectly suits Teddy Bridgewater's low A dot game. How it's funny, like with the low A dot, and maybe do you think it's Teddy Bridgewater that he can't make the downfield throws, or he just wasn't asked to make the downfield throws with the Saints last year? I mean, I think he's not a big armed vertical passer. I I, I still think that he can throw the ball downfield. Um, you know, but I think that I think that that's just I think it's his game. He's like a higher percent, and he was like this in Minnesota too. He's like a higher percentage. Um, you know, completion rate quarterback. Uh, and that's just kind of the style that at, at which he plays. He's not going to turn the ball or, you know, ideally, theoretically, he's not going to turn the ball over a lot. He's not going to give the ball to the other team. You know, he's the anti Jameis Winston. And that can be a good fit on certain teams in certain situations, especially when you put a lot of talent around him. I mean, I think that he, he's a guy that can be, he's not necessarily going to elevate the talent around him, but I think that he can be elevated. Like Andy Dalton had some really nice years when he had AJ green and Marvin Jones and Muhammad Sanu and Tyler Eifert all healthy. You know, I think that he's an Andy Dalton style quarterback uh, with maybe a little bit more athleticism. How does Robbie Anderson fit into this offense? Like, again, if he's going to be, that's ideally where I would see Robbie Anderson making his biggest impact. If you already have a crisp route runner, like DJ Moore, you have a gadget guy like Curtis Samuel, you have someone like Ian Thomas or even Seth the valve now in order to clog up the seams McCaffrey out of the backfield. It just seemed like a really weird signing to me that where does he fit into this offense? I think he's just going to be a role player, you know, 40 catches, 680 yards, four or five touchdowns. 
and a guy that defenses are absolutely going to have to account for because of his speed. And he's going to make life easier for Ian Thomas and DJ Moore and Christian McCaffrey in the short and intermediate sections. I, I think he's going to be a, a role player and he wanted to go there. I mean, he, you know, there were reports that he took, uh, he turned down more money from the jets to go play under Matt rule, who was his coach at temple. And to not play for the jets, which sounds like a pretty promising <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> Right. Uh, what do we do with running backs in the first round? Because I had Emory Hunt on yesterday, and I, mm-hmm. I asked him kind of thing, and but he's a former college running back. He does have a bias towards picking some of these guys high. And I was like, well, like, is it smart to pick Saquon Barkley at number two? And his his idea behind it was if there is a quote-unquote generational type player that can do everything stay on the field for all three downs be effective in the passing game pass blocking game that yeah he wouldn't have a problem taking that sort of talent there and I always think that you know people are bad evaluators of talent as it is that why would you lump yourself into a position where you could be wrong on a player like that then you're committed to them the entire time and it's not a position that even if you hit right it's the greatest impact of the world in terms of how many games you're actually going to win I actually like the back end of the first round running back because you get that extra year of control I think that could logically make a lot of sense probably best suited for a quarterback if you're going to do it and you can find a guy down there trade up to the 30th pick take your quarterback a lot like what the Ravens did with Lamar Jackson but where should running backs go in the the first round if at all and do you think that any go in the first round this year um i don't think that any go in the first round this year i think that that's a pretty good prop bet um you can get i know you can get some uh, some pretty good odds on that too um if you bet no running backs go in the first round um i you know one of the factors that i mean one of the one of the aspects you really have to factor in when you look at the running back position is how injury propense that position is as compared to other positions. No one, no, you know, no other position gets hurt like at, you know, at the rate that running backs do. And so, you know, you can talk about, Oh, he's a generational talent. Oh, you know, he, you know, he's unique and you know, all this like Saquon Barkley got hurt last year and was highly ineffective. Okay. Saquon Barkley wasn't good last year. He was one of the, he was really one of the worst starting running backs in the league. If you look at it from a football outsider's success rate standpoint, And, you know, this is not just, you know, a fantasy thing. I mean, this is like he wasn't very good last year. Um, And he was, you know, trying to play hurt. And running backs that, you know, get 300 touches, they, you know, they, you know, the the analogy is they have, you know, they they run into like 300 car crashes per season. And so that is a big thing that doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to investments into running backs. You know, we saw it with Todd Gurley. We saw it with David Johnson. I mean, these guys get hurt, and um, it's just, it's not a good investment, really, from any standpoint. I, I and I love running backs. Like I think that there's nothing, there's no better play in the NFL to watch from like um, an aesthetic standpoint than like running backs making big plays and big runs, and you know, turning short passes into long gains and making guys miss. I mean, these guys are incredible athletes. I, I love watching running backs play. But, and, and I think that that kind of fools us, you know, is, is watching them play, how exciting Saquon Barkley is when he's, you know, at his peak. But he is not a good investment, like, whatsoever um, at the top of, of, of any draft. The total running backs drafted in the first round at DraftKings Sportsbook, as we speak right now, it's over under .5. The under is paying 2-1. to one. So, I mean – to does it happen you know once i think it's probably 50 50 at least to me i think that should probably be even money shouldn't it yes yes yeah but then you have your team like you said it's going to be a very unpredictable draft maybe some teams look at the board like is there a consensus at running back of who the top running back should be because it seems to me like it like is DeAndre Swift the consensus number one, or is he someone you like the best, or is is it like Jonathan Taylor, DeAndre Swift? That's where people want to go, or is it just like you could name five different guys that could be number one at running back? No, I think it's DeAndre Swift and Jonathan Taylor, and they're so different that it's really hard to choose between them. Jonathan Taylor, I think the best comparison for him is you know somewhere along the lines of Ezekiel Elliott, and then with. Uh, DeAndre Swift, somewhere along the lines of Dalvin Cook and, and Alvin Kamara. Uh, 
and just very, very different players who, you know, depending on their landing spot, depending on the creativity of their coaching staff, like that's going to be, you know, that's really what, and, and whether they stay healthy, that's really going to be the determining factor as to, you know, who we look back in three years and say, oh, you know, clearly Jonathan Taylor was the better pick or clearly DeAndre Swift should have been the first running back selected. Like they're, they're, they're neck and neck, I think, from like a scouting grade standpoint. And I think that, uh, but they're just such different players uh, that, you know, they really should be almost, I mean, they, they, they play in very different styles. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Daniel Jeremiah has, and these guys are like, you know, they, they use their intel uh, in order to, so they're, they're like a gauge of, of NFL teams because they use their intel to influence their, their rankings and their mock picks. And Gil Brandt had Jonathan Taylor significantly higher in his rankings than DeAndre Swift. And the opposite was true for Dar- Daniel Jeremiah. Daniel Jeremiah has DeAndre Swift ahead of Jonathan Taylor. Um, I don't think that, I think they both go like in the 30s or early 40s. Well, how far above the, like, with those two, how far are they above the next tier of guys like Akers and Dobbins and those sorts of players? Yeah, I mean, I think that some people, like Dane Brugler has J.K. Dobbins as his number one running back. Um, so I think that there is kind of a, a push for J.K. Dobbins to be sort of maybe in his own tier. Like you have DeAndre Swift and Jonathan Taylor in the first tier, and then you have J.K. Dobbins maybe in his own tier. and then. You know, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is really does have a unique skill set. I mean, 55 catches in, a, in one college season for a running back is – you don't see that very often. And that's what he had with LSU this past season. You know, um, Austin Eckler kind of comparisons. I mean, you, you know, you can line him up in the slot. So he's just a – he's like a, a – but he ran 4-6 and he's 5-7. And those are going to create biases against him in terms of his draft slot. Like, I don't – I, I like my running backs to be shorter and I don't care that he ran four six because I've seen him play and he's freaking awesome. Um, but like, I think that those are going to create inherent biases as to where teams rank him and when, you know, when a team is on the board about to draft, are they going to select them? Like, are oh, he's short and slow, you know? Um, and then uh, Cam Akers uh, is, is uh, also in that mix. And then Zach Moss, I think that there, there's a, a fairly consensus top six, um, but I, I think that really the, the top four backs are, are, are pretty clear in DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, um, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and J.K. Dobbins. Well, if that's the case, and there is a consensus top six, and maybe people have them ranked in different orders, that would lead me to believe that unless someone jumps the gun and starts a run, it's almost like after you get past the first year of tight ends in your fantasy draft, like, oh, Kittle and Kelsey are off the board. Okay, well, let's start paying attention when the next guy goes off the board because they're going to start going boom, 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 because that's how people react. If the Dolphins don't jump at 26 on a running back, it's hard to envision someone else jumping the line like did the titans try to get i mean it's not gonna be the titans they just resigned derrick henry i just don't know who ends up going towards the back end is the thing so it um, right. I, i'm only thinking of this in the version of is that prop back gonna hit and it seems like it should unless like i said someone trades up into the back end of the first round i do think that i think the niners are going to trade one of their picks just because they have no picks after the first yeah. round that it would make a lot of sense to trade back i think and try to gain some equity in this draft knowing that you're so close I mean, obviously they lost in the Super Bowl, but filling out a few depth pieces might be all they need. Like if they can get a, you know, if they can replace DeForest Buckner uh, at 13 or go get a receiver at 13 or turn 13 into, I don't know, like the top end of the second round in a third round pick or whatever it might be, that just gaining one stud player and then two pieces of good depth, that might be all they need. And maybe that's where a team jumps up and tries to get a running back, but it could be Jalen Hurts as well. You know, I'd love to see analytics Twitter when some team trades up for a running back. But like I said, if you think like if the whole thing about running backs right now is like, I don't know if we're seeing this yet, but you see it like people aren't stupid in looking at this. Like if you're a that's something that Ryan Pace does. Okay, he trades up for a freaking running back. There you go. So, I mean, it could be Chicago trade. Well, we don't have enough running backs as it is. I think we need more here. But, like, 
because of that fifth year thing. So you put off, I mean, if you're Carolina, apparently you don't, but theoretically you would get all five years with the team option. And then you can just, if you were willing to play the game, right, you just let them free. Like the best five years that basically any running back is going to have is the first five years of their career. You get that extra year. You know, they're going to be paid well because they're a first round running back, but it's not like off the charts, stupid, hurting your team type salaries. It would be like the, especially if it was like the 30th pick or something like that. Then you're looking at, I don't know, what, like $5 million per year towards the end of it. Like that's not, it's not unsubstantial, but it's not hurting you in any sort of way. And if that's all the resources you need to commit, if you get lucky, you can still get a top end guy and then you get him on a cheaper end deal where if you took him with the first pick of the second round, you lose that potential extra year that you get in the first round. I do see some logic behind it. If this was the player that you're going to build around, it's just tough to know that, you know, five years in advance, you really have to get it right. Or then you're committing far too many resources to a first round pick in that spot. But I had somewhere or, to get. Or, or you could trade up into the back end of the first round and use the pick on a player who plays a position that actually matters. True. There is always that. Like I said, the, I think the Ravens, what they did with Lamar Jackson, is going to prove to be super oh, yeah. prescient uh, oh, in yeah. like two years. <laughs> oh, I mean, it already has proven prescient. Right. Yeah, and then even from a financial standpoint, like yeah. if you're – Yeah, because it puts them in such a great financial standpoint for the next – two and even three years and you're you're seeing them utilize it right now too like they're putting that cap space to work with like i was trying to think of it the other day who was the last corner that signed anywhere as a free agent that was like really really good on a long-term deal you mean that like that it actually worked out i mean byron jones is is that guy this year but you mean that it actually worked out yeah um that's a good question um, like signed with another team. Yeah, like didn't re-sign. Like I, the one that always pops mm-hmm. in my mind is Namdi Asamoah when he ended up signing right. with the Eagles on that giant. What a deal. disaster! It was, but like even it was a really weird thing. And this is a bias that we get into with cornerbacks all the time: is that they have a really good year. The metrics prove that. And then there becomes a thing, inherent bias with the other teams. We're like, well, we're just not going to throw to his side of the field. So they get like two years right. of being perceived as the best corner in football, despite the fact that they don't do anything. They just stand there. Uh, no one even tries to challenge them at that point because it's so easy to throw to the other side of the field. And then once they re-sign or they sign with a different team, maybe they're in a new scheme, maybe their skills have deteriorated, or we just don't have the actual testing. Like, yeah, you, you can look really great if people throw your way two times a game. <laughs> I mean, there have been corners that, you know, signed at reasonable rates that have worked out well with, you know, with, with, on their new team. I mean, Richard Sherman has worked out for the 49ers. Um, AJ Boye, I think worked out for the Jags, but those guys weren't really top of the market guys. The last guy was uh, Stefan Gilmore of the Patriots. He's worked out really well going from the bills to the Patriots, but you're right. It is not a common occurrence that cornerbacks get top of the market deals, go to, go to their new teams and have a lot of success. And, and that goes back to our continuity discussion. There, it, there, it's, there's absolutely an advantage to keeping your, keeping your own, and I think that that's really strongly highlighted at the cornerback position. I, I think you, you brought up a very good point. Well, and I think that's potentially instead of like trading the pick, maybe that's what the 49ers do at 31. Like I know they brought Sherman back, but like I talked about, that deal is essentially a one-year deal. Uh, They can choose to keep him, but we'll see how that ends up going. Three of their four starting corners are all free agents, unrestricted, going after this season that we're going to come up, that they need to get an influx of high-end talent on that team that's under team control. So that seems like everyone's talking about wide receiver for them, but I think they need to continue to prop up that defense. Yeah. Do you think that they end up going wide receiver at 13 or do they just say, screw it? Like is wide receiver deep, is wide receiver deep enough this year that you can find guys in the fifth round? It is. It is. I mean, the fifth round is, is a stretch, but you know, third and fourth round. Um, I think it definitely is uh, deep enough. I think the thing is that they're in that range of like, I think, I think it starts at nine with the Jaguars. It ends at number 16 with the Falcons, who could use a third receiver. Um, and then the Broncos are at 15, and you know the Jets are in there at 11. And there's just a bunch of teams from nine to 16 that could use a receiver. And there are some truly awesome receiver prospects, like Jerry Judy and a Kyle Shanahan offense would be a thing of beauty. I mean, 
Henry Ruggs too. I mean, CD Lamb, like these guys would fit in there like a glove. And that's kind of the range where I think that those receivers are going to go. And there's a lot of wide receiver needy teams in there. 12 uh, Oakland uh, right in front of San Francisco, you know, so um, I, I think it makes sense from that, that standpoint. I think that Javon Kinlaw, if they want to continue to add to that interior after trading away to shop the uh, Forrest Buckner, uh, Javon Kinlaw out of South Carolina uh, could be another consideration for them. There's no real corners that kind of fit into that, um, fit into that range, but at 31, there are absolutely some corners. Christian Fulton out of LSU, Jalen Johnson uh, out of Utah. Um, so, uh, but I think that, yeah, I mean, just kind of where their position in the draft and I mean, wide receivers in need for them. I mean, you know, Emmanuel Sanders is gone. Uh, Kendrick Bourne is there. Jalen Hurd, who didn't play as a rookie. Debo Samuel is really all that you have to hang your hat on right now in the 49ers receiver court. It is, but I think you have to consider George Kittle a massive part of that as well. Sure, like sure, like sure. when you look at the when you look at the Chiefs, yes, Sammy Watkins is really good, but he's technically the third guy. It's Hill, it's Kelsey, and then there's the rest of the pieces. I think a Shanahan offense can work that way as well. Yeah. So the other one, the point that I want to make earlier about running backs, that do you think that we're seeing a talent downturn? Because kids are going into college or they're in high school. Maybe they play running back and they're assessing the situation. Be like, no one values running backs. These contracts are way down. My career is super short. That you're losing a lot of talent from that position because kids are just saying, I want to play almost any other position. I know it's a glory position, but it's not one that's going to get me paid if I go to the next level. I should be playing receiver. Maybe I should be playing safety or corner or even outside linebacker who can get to the passer that kind of thing do you think that's hurt the overall quality of running back I think that not yet um I think that that's something that could have start to happen very soon I mean but if you look at the last two running back and this isn't a great running back class especially from a depth standpoint I think there are some good prospects up top but the depth is lacking so maybe we're starting to see it set in but if you look at the the past couple years I mean there have been a lot of good running backs that have come out of college over the last two years. And I think that this just happens to be a bad class, but I, I think that maybe, maybe it is starting to set in, but I, I don't think it'll really be, we'll really feel that effect, which I do think is coming, but I don't think we'll really feel it, uh, feel that for a couple more years. All right. Well, let's close with quarterbacks. Cause I mean, that's all anyone really cares about anyway, is the quarterbacks burrow. Is there a 1% chance the Bengals don't take burrow and they take chase young instead? One percent, yeah. Okay, so it's it's not impossible. Oh, oh, Chase Young instead? No, yeah. I, I no, not Chase Young. I'm sorry, I didn't listen to the end of, of what you said there. Uh, who, I, who would it be if it wasn't Joe Burrow? I think the scenario would be the Dolphins trade to one. Okay, interesting. And then Dolphins they have the need. They have and they have the ammunition. And I mean, there are reports that it, they they just love Joe Burrow. Well, how much better is Joe Burrow, do you think, than the rest of the quarterbacks in this class? I mean, I think a healthy Tua would have, you know, have a case to be made. But I think that with the injury factor, I think that Joe Burrow is in in his own tier. So a healthy Tua would be out there. Is Herbert closer to those two guys or is he closer to like the loves and the hurts of the world? I mean, I don't think that he's on par with Tua and Burrow, but it seems like a lot of NFL teams disagree with my take um, because it, it looks like he's going to go pretty early, like a lock for the top 10 and quite possibly, you know, just doesn't get past the Chargers at six. It's funny. Almost every single person I've talked to doesn't like him whatsoever. And yeah. yet, yet when I continue to see like the mocks or I hear the reporting that he, you know, he could be t- picked over Tua, that kind of thing. What is it that enamors people with him? Is it this like unforeseen mobility that he all of a sudden has that we saw in the last game that he actually played? Or is it, oh, like he's basically coordinated Brock Osweiler? Um, You know, to be fair, like a lot of people didn't like Daniel Jones coming out last year. A lot of people the year before didn't like Josh Allen. He's had a, a level of success. I know he's, you know, a scattershot, erratic passer, but he's such a good runner that I think it makes up for a lot. A lot of people didn't like Lamar Jackson, you know? So, um, but with, with Justin Herbert, yeah. I mean, he's, he checks like every box from a tool standpoint, 
you know, he's, he's big. He's like six, six, two thirty. He's a really good athlete on paper and um, he's got a big arm, but I mean, he was not an aggressive passer at Oregon. I mean, he averaged right around eight yards per pass attempt. And that's, you know, that's not a big time number at all in college. Uh, and he, you know, he didn't really put that athleticism to use functionally on the field. I didn't think. Um, and, you know, I, I question like his touch and his accuracy in the short and in, in, in intermediate section. So I think that there, there are like a lot of flaws. I think that you can, if you put yourself in the mind of a, I mean, he's, he's apparently he's like an off the charts intangible guy. And, um, you know, he's, he's really clean as a prospect until you, you know, watch him repeatedly and, and you know, see that he really doesn't have consistent ball location. Um, so well, let yeah. me ask you this then. So if let's say Tua and Burrow are off the board, so that means either the Dolphins have picked Tua, then the Chargers are left standing there, just kind of looking into the void, or yeah. the Chargers or Jags trade up to pass. I'm probably not going to be the Jags, but let's say the Chargers move up to where the Lions pick, they pick Tua, and then the Dolphins are stu stuck there with Herbert. Do you think it makes more sense to take Herbert with that pick or take the best possible player at any position and then take a quarterback at the beginning of the second round? So this is, again, what, you know, what do I think that they should do versus what do I think they will do? I think they will take Justin Herbert if he's there at five. And I think there's a chance that they might even like try to trade up to get him. I mean, they have a ton of ammunition and the Miami Herald has been relentless in telling us that the Dolphins love Justin Herbert. Um, and I, I believe them. I and there, there's a lot of good reporters there. Armando Salguero, Barry Jackson, you know, they're, they're a very well covered team, especially by that specific uh, newspaper. Um, so I believe that. What do I think they should do? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I think that they should get, I, I think they should try to get to him. I, I really do. Um, I think that he's probably not going to be a factor in his first season. Um, but I think that he, I just I think that he's a better prospect than than is Justin Herbert in terms of position player like they need a left tackle and that is a range in which you know I think Tristan Wirfs out of Iowa uh, could go uh, Makai Becton out of Louisville uh, he could go you know um, and so I, I think that if you're looking at a position player you're looking at a left tackle and then you're maybe trying to use your other two first round picks to get back in position maybe. To, to catch a falling Tua. Catch a falling Tua, or you can just see how the draft is playing itself out. Who needs a quarterback? Who doesn't? And mm -hmm. like I said, do you, you think that Jordan Love's going to go in the first round? Maybe Patriots? Yes. I, I'm not I'm not as – like I went to the Combine, and the, the talk there was that he could, like, go in the top ten. Uh, but I think that that feeling has kind of faded away, and I think that he goes in the 19 to 30 range, starting with the Raiders at 19 – uh, Patriots at 23, Saints at 24, the Packers are at 30. So I think that he goes somewhere in that range, but I'm, I'm not fully confident that he goes first round. I think that he is a guy that could slip into the thirties or forties. And do you like, would you, if you had to wager on it, would you say that love goes ahead of Jalen hurts? Like, and where do you think Jalen hurts ends up going? I do think love goes ahead of Jalen hurts. Man, Jalen Hurts is really interesting. You know, you, you watch him early in his career at Alabama, and he was really young then. But uh, he was he was terrible, I mean, as a passer at least. And he goes to Oklahoma. It's, you know, everything's very, very schemed there under Lincoln Riley. But, I mean, he made major strides as a passer, and he's a dynamic runner. And, you know, we, we've seen it with, you know, quarterbacks that are not great passers like Josh Allen. Um, who have been functional starters early in their careers and had and mixed in some dynamic moments uh, when they have that uh, that weapon that is their legs. And Jalen Hurts is going to bring that to the NFL. Where do I think he goes? I don't know, like forty-five to fifty-five, so somewhere in there. I think. Um, I, I at the same time, like if he did go in the you know early thirties, late, late, late twenties, I think that. You know, I don't think anybody should be shocked by that uh, just to try to get that fifth year option. So final thing, uh, we're going to see where these quarterbacks all shake down. Then we'll have a better sense of that going forward. Now, whether it be the Jags, the Chargers, the Raiders, the Patriots, where do you think Cam and Jameis end up? 
Cam, I think, makes sense to the Jaguars. I would not rule out the Patriots after the draft. If the Patriots come out of the draft with you know nothing at nothing at quarterback, and they, you know they just have Jared Stidham and Brian Hoyer, I think that they might look at Cam if he's willing to take a reasonable contract, like one year, ten million. Uh, but I think the Jaguars have picked up steam as a potential destination for for him. Jameis Winston, I mean, I think he's going to have to settle for a backup job. Um, and if you look at the front, the decision makers that were in Tampa Bay when he was drafted, uh, Dirk Cutter was his coach. He's in Atlanta. Could Jameis Winston go back up Matt Ryan? They know him within the division. I don't think that's crazy. It doesn't feel right, but I don't think it's crazy. Uh, and then the Titans, uh, John Robinson, the Titans GM, he was in the front office when the Buccaneers selected Jameis Winston. And um, uh, John Robinson, I mean, you know, they could use a backup for Ryan Tannehill, although Jameis Winston, I think, might present too much of a threat to a, a quarterback that they just gave a four-year, $118 million deal in Tannehill. So, um, but I, you know, that that's the best that I can come up with, with for Jameis Winston is that he's just going to have to take a backup deal with someone that still has some, you know, uh, on a team that is run by someone who still has some level of belief in him when he was coming out of Florida State. Well, it's funny you mentioned that Jameis might have too much talent to put behind Tannehill and you don't want to create that weird dynamic. Is that what happened with Chicago? Why they traded for Foles? Like, we can't bring in someone who's, like, better than Trubisky. How about someone he can just compete with? And maybe Foles beats out Trubisky, but Trubisky has an opportunity here. You bring in Cam, you bring in Jameis. Like, Trubisky is no longer your starter. They're the starter. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that there's an element of Ryan Pace still is holding out hope, you know, that his, that his failed draft pick will work. His embarrassingly failed draft pick will work. Um, and then the, just, there's so much familiarity with Nick Foles in Chicago. Uh, Matt Nagy was with him in Kansas city. Um, you know, they've got uh, John Filippo on staff now. He was the guy who, like, engineered Nick Foles going to the Jags uh, last year. Uh, there's, there's just a ton of familiarity with him. And even with no off – I mean, like, I think Nick Foles is going to be the Bears starter this year because I know for sure that Matt Nagy does not believe in, in Mitchell Trubisky. Um, so I, I just – I think that Nick Foles is going to be their starter. But they aimed a little low, uh, you know – due in part due to the comfort level with the coaching staff and due in part because, you know, I think that if Ryan Pace, you know, had the, had the Cajones to, to really take a swing at, at, you know, a, a, a difference making game changing quarterback like Cam Newton, but he doesn't have that. Is it almost like with Case Keenum going to the Browns where Stefanski's there, it's just like, Hey, he's going to know this offense. Let's insert him as the backup. That way we don't need to deal with this. Yes, yes. Although I don't think that obviously Case Keenum is much of a threat to Baker Mayfield in the in the near term, uh, and I think that Foles is just going to be the Bears starter. Yeah, I mean that's that's completely fair. It just seems like if anything was to happen to Baker, this seems like a very logical transition. Although this Baker no thing, could, this Baker thing could get really interesting. Like if he wasn't very good last year, and obviously the coaching staff was terrible, and you're asking him to learn this brand new system coming into this right. year. And there's no off season to do so. I'm sure he has like the playbook, but if you're not actively practicing all this stuff, it might be a bit of an adjustment period. And it could be the second straight year where the Browns win the off season, but aren't good on the field. No, I mean, look, after you play as poorly as Baker Mayfield did last year, you, know, you certainly can't rule out, you know, the possibility that, you know, just the, 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 tra the trajectory is downward for him. Uh, but I do think that Kevin Stefanski is going to put him in a lot of, um, you know, more optimized situations. I really think the coaching was very, very bad in Cleveland last year. All right. Evan Silva, you have everything up on EstablishTheRun.com right now, and everything is free up on EstablishTheRun.com right now, isn't it? Yes, sir. So I, I suggest everyone go check that out. What else do you have coming out before the draft? You have a mock-up right now, your top quarterbacks, your top running backs, sleeper wide receivers. What new content should we expect in the final week? Well, I just did a podcast with uh, Matt Kelly, uh, fantasy mansion on Twitter. And uh, the last two years we did podcasts about the Browns and the giants kind of just like really taking an in-depth exploration into uh, those franchises. And we did that this year uh, regarding the Texans and Bill O'Brien and, and Bob McNair. So if you're, if you're into listening to podcasts um, that really, you know, take you know, a really deep dive into 
the dysfunction uh, that results in Bill O'Brien becoming uh, maybe the most powerful head coach in the NFL, like definitely right up there with Belichick. Um, you know, then, then you, you could check that out. That it still blows my mind. Bill O'Brien. Anyway, mm-hmm. Evan Silva, you can follow him on Twitter. Evan Silva, like I mentioned, establishtherun.com. For me, at the PME, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I told you about the draws at the beginning of the show, but it is highly important, especially right now with podcasts on the dip. With no commuting going on, fewer people are listening to podcasts, so please go download the Pat Mayo Experience. If you subscribe, leave a five-star review, DraftKings handle. I got you in a draw for 100 DK bucks. I mean, boom. Who couldn't use 100 DK bucks right now? So get yourself in that draw by subscribing to the audio podcast. Thank you all for watching. Hit the description for all of the NFL draft coverage, mock draft, prop bets, everything, wide receiver breakdowns coming Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. So stay tuned. I'm Pat Mayo. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.